over all of our years of experience, I think one thing we can always come back to is that things haven't really changed much. You, you have the same kind of uh, uh, shenanigans people got up to, or they get up to now. They were getting up to 300 years ago or 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago, most likely. We don't have the record, but it's you. I, and there's some books I read, these old, there's some, there was a guy named uh, Carlo de March who wrote this thing of how to make violins. He was carping the whole way through about kids today, how they don't know and they don't respect. That's like the first guy I worked for. <laughs> you know, I, I kept reading this thing. This is so familiar to me. Who, oh, yeah. It's that guy. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and in part two of my interview with husband and wife luthiers, Joe Grubaugh and Sigrun Seifert, that took place inside their shop in Petaluma, California, I asked them to talk about a subject that has both fascinated and perplexed violin makers and music historians for generations. It concerns the last step in the process of making a violin or a cello, and it can make all the difference in not only how the instrument looks, but more importantly, in how it sounds. The subject I'm referring to, of course, is the varnish. In regards to, to varnish, uh, I mean, violin makers have a history to want to find the old varnish. It's a big secret, you know. Everybody cooks varnish. And uh, nowadays, we can study more about varnishes with modern technology. But when I went to the Smithsonian for my stint there, we were asked at the American Federation to uh, send them varnish samples ahead of time for them to analyze so they could see how good the analyzing was, you know, how the identification of varnishes. Uh, because with old masters they they cannot talk back and say no you're wrong you know they only can can study so long because solvents disappear some of them and resins oxidize in different directions so we were varnishing a cello that we made a copy and we had varnish samples out on the deck where we out front in the sun because our varnish polymerizes it mm -hmm. dries with sunlight these are varnish samples on scraps of maple of maple yeah so it they were um lovely you know and the wind came and one sample flew down our deck into the berries below where a creek is going so there is humidity and um the weather and everything else. So it didn't freeze because frost damage on varnish is different, but there was a, a season that the, in, the varnish was down in the berries. So when I cleared out the berries for the, the creek, I had the sample. Well, we had 
And so the there were other two part, identical samples. samples. One, one went into the berries, the other came back in here. And was in a drawer. And was in a drawer. So we then sent both samples to the Smithsonian, had them analyze it. And it came back as two different. One very old sample and one new. And they were stunned when I said that they were from the identical pot. And what same was, date, same time. Same time. Not only that, what was really interesting was that the wood itself that was exposed had a kind of grayishness, a mold to it, which old instruments have too, because in old Europe, there were, uh, if you're in Cremona, it's moist there, you know, there are molds all over the place. When I remember cleaning out a cello from from London that was it was full of soot Black with, inside. Yeah, with coal soot and oh, it was candle incredible. soot. Just, just the amount yeah. of soot that came out. We collected it. Vaisa said, oh, collect this, put it in, because we will use it later to dust up instruments that we restored inside so to make it look not as new the wood. So so return the dirt or, you know. but Not uh, to fool anybody. No, no. <laughs> But um, so, yeah, like my tone ball collection over there. <laughs> on so, the wall. No, it's just that's sidetracking. It's it's collected from fancy instruments. These dust bunnies that are inside instruments. Yeah, there's, there's, and yeah. and we collect those because somebody once wanted to have their little tone ball back because he was missing it. So <laughs> so I put them. So anyway, so we sent these samples, and when I got there. They were just stunned because truly the oxidation process and the weathering just made it age so fast. And my colleagues over there said, can we send our fiddles to you to hang in your creek, you know, for you, you know, it was just a big joke. But they were, they were really surprised to learn about the changes it had being exposed. And it yeah. was, and then Melva Hoviak, the, the curator there, uh, who just passed away last year, he came out and said, you know, you guys, you do stuff that they did in those times. And he wanted to see how we cooked our varnish. And he came out for a few days yeah. to, to cook with us varnish, to take incremental samples to see how things change and for them to study. Mm. What are the ingredients in varnish? We get our wood from from Italy, mostly, the tops, uh, and we get our maple and our willow also from Italy, and we get our maple from Bosnia, which is where the the classic woods come from that that went into Italian violin making. Cremona, around Cremona, is a flax-growing region, and and for linen, flax, uh, you, you spin flax into linen. One of the side uh, beneficiaries of growing linen is you get also get linseed, and you can press those linseed and get linseed oil. Now, that's a fairly common ingredient throughout time. And so, and then the other thing that is in, that turns out that's in Italian varnish is uh, uh, resins from uh, uh, spruce, or pine, or or uh, larch trees um, that comes out of a forest, and these were all 
harvested at the time by people out in the woods. Stradivari didn't go out and plant flax. He got linseed pressed already, and and he may probably even did get his varnish already prepared at an apothecary shop because that's what apothecaries did. That was their job is to get stuff that that people want. Uh, Italian varnish is was on everything. It was on church pews. It was the same stuff. It was a. It was, it a, was so and known it was, that they didn't want to write. Yeah, it and it wasn't. It was such a common yeah, thing. Yeah, it wasn't that it was a secret. It's that for the two hundred years from fifteen fifteen to seventeen fifteen, when Italian violin making was at its peak, it changed a little bit. A lot because of the apothecaries, because they would they might get something that was called one thing one day, and the next day they get a product that's called that same thing that is different. You lose your that train coming in of of what ingredients are, but they they kept making and refining their varnish, and then at some point in time in the 1740s and 50s, people started seeing, especially the French started seeing these. These furniture brought back from China that was really glossy. Italian violin is not glossy. It is, it is really beautiful, but in a very, very uh, organic way. And these things started, these, this furniture from China that would come in got so glossy. And then um, alchemists started thinking, well, we need to make a better varnish. So a better varnish replaced this classical varnish, because it wasn't wearing off on the shoulders like it did in the past, and it that probably faster. Yeah, and that turned out instead of so. the instead of this kept secret from the from the Italians, it was more of a misplacement of 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 a technology, kind of like CDs are to records, where people say, "Oh, but have you heard a record? How the fidelity of a record versus the lack of it in a CD," uh, and so it just got replaced. Uh, as our friend Norman, the acoustician Norman Pickering, once said, you know, we bury our past so quickly. And he was talking about the recording industry that he was a big part of. What, what I say, it's the same. It's we bury our past so quickly. It was simply put aside because something better came along that in retrospect wasn't as good as that old stuff that failed. And so that's, that's the missing varnish from that time. It was very common. So does Stradivari pee in his varnish? Some people say no. Well, there's, there's, uh, you can, there are, there's some good manuscripts where they ask for the, for the, for the lee. I think they call it the lee of a young man. You know, I guess that's before they drink wine or something like that, or I don't know, who knows, a young boy. Uh, uh, you, you can use urine. Urine is a very you know, the Romans washed their clothes with it. You know, this well, is the urinals uh, along the side of the cleaners. It's ure- urea is a fabulous thing if you know what to do with it, and it's certainly common enough. Well, there's also uh, oral lipase in restoration. That's true. Oral lipase. Yeah, oral lipase. It's nothing else than spit. Yeah. And it's a fantastic cleaner. Yeah. You know, mother spit probably even more. But what they said in the past, you know, you know yeah. but but in the past, they would have, if they would have to uh, clean a painting or something with spit, you would have a spaghetti dinner the night before. And supposedly that uh, changes the chemistry yeah. in your saliva to be more potent. 
Yeah, spit but, takes off a lot of things. But there that... was, I remember having to clean a cello in Los Angeles. Pietro of Venice, Pietro Guarneri of Venice. Venice, a very famous instrument from a very famous player. And uh, the only way, Hans told me, you can't go with nothing on it. The varnish is so sensitive, you have to clean with spit. Now, how long can you produce saliva to clean a cello? I was going around the shop for donations, yeah. you know, because yeah. I needed to clean this. Here come, and I was here running comes that dry. lady with the spittoon. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. so, but it, yeah, and and so artists do that on very delicate things. We mm -hmm. do too if it's delicate. Yes. Actually, it takes off things that. Uh, but so you can call it oral lipase because you That's can buy what it. That's you, Well, you can it. you can buy it. It's it's. It's uh, it's probably a, an animal product, but uh, oral lipase is a is a real it's real stuff that you can uh, buy as an ingredient to clean with, you know. So, getting back to violin varnish, are there many books on the subject? If you look at um, Dorner, Max Dorner, yeah, but there's uh, yeah, there's some there's some good books on on uh, we've we've there's some treatises that that have been translated and. And uh, uh, you know, a century and a half ago, that are now Dover books. Uh, there's a there's a, a couple of volumes of uh, Merrifield, Mary Merrifield, I think that's her name. Merriweather, what's it? Merrifield, Merrifield, I think that's America, right. Yeah. Uh, and one by Eastman that are just hundreds and hundreds of recipes from some thing that was found in in Padua, you know, some manuscript from Padua where the guy. Now, some of what they wrote down was BS. They didn't they didn't know everything. And when they didn't, they wrote it down anyway, you know, or yeah. they copied it and added to it or and somebody then, told them. Uh, gums would have different names, yep. too, by mistake. So to really realize. Or different sources. Yeah. Uh, what gum it is or. You know, or what color it is. You know, what they really talk about is not necessarily a given because uh, it's like the term daisy for a flower that looks like a daisy. You know, it could be all kinds of different flowers. Just it's a daisy. You know, so so it's kind of it's a catchword for mm -hmm. some gums and, and colors too. Yeah. And then of course, um, yeah, this. Also, the adultering of, of materials, too, that yep. can happen to make more money, you know, and, and kind of... Um, yeah, the same... What we have, over all of our years of experience, I think one thing we can always come back to is that things haven't really changed much. You, you have the same kind of uh, uh, shenanigans people got up to, or they get up to now. They were getting up to 300 years ago or 500 years ago or... 5,000 years ago, most likely. We don't have the record, but it's you. I, and there's some books I read, these old, there's some, there was a guy named uh, Carlo de March who wrote this thing of how to make violins. He was carping the whole way through about kids today, how they don't know and they don't respect. That's like the first guy I worked for. <laughs> you know, I, I kept reading this thing. This is so familiar to me. Who, oh, yeah. It's that guy. <laughs> and so the more we've gone, the more we realize it's just, it just isn't a new story, really. It's just. I heard a story about a violin maker in Venice who would hang his uh, unvarnished violins up in a bell tower so the vibration of the bells would improve the tone of the violins. Uh, is there any truth to that? In Mittenwald, we did hang them yeah. in a hallway for a couple of years to sun 
to get kind of a natural color. I mean, you know how wood oxidizes and gets brown being exposed to light, mm. you know, and and they felt that that was important. Yeah. And now the myth part is that w- with this science of dendrochronology where they can count grains, they what they found was on a lot of the was a, there's a few violin makers that are whose names are very famous. Amati is one, Stradivari is one, Guarneri is one. And this there's a Guarneri called Guarneri. We call him Del Gesù because of his label. He's Joseph Guarneri. Um, they started counting the tree rings and comparing it with the date, and realized that the wood was just a year old. The last year, on on, and 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 it was. A re- and this was in 1995 that some of this stuff started coming. It was a revelation to all of us that these Italians were, ch- they weren't making products that were mystical. They were just making violins. Nothing magical. There were no cone hats with, with stars and moons on them. There were people making a living, making and selling violins. And they would get them done. We were reasonably certain that Del Jesu did two a month. He had sometimes on his labels, he had a couple of marks. We know how long he lived. We know how many violins are left. We, we've predicted how many violins he could have made. He also most likely worked with his wife, Katarina Rota, and which was also a nice new thing that we learned about in the 90s that they, they started finding some old documents. And, and there had always been rumors of this other woman, a woman violin maker. And so, but Del Jesu was just making instruments to sell. And he was really feeling happy if he got to sell them because times were good and then they were bad and then they were good. The, the Austrians during Strad and Del Jesu's time in Cremona, I think it started off under Spanish succession and then it became Austrian and then it was French for a while and then it was Austrian again or vice versa. You know, during a lifespan, people invading your town, having soldiers quartered there, uh, and and uh, they were just making a living. There was nothing magical about anything they did, I don't think. They were just making a living, putting varnish on that they got down the street, doing what their parents taught them, because there's usually two or three generations of violin makers in a family, and there's a, there's a very straight line from uh, the early Amatis through his sons and grandsons and great-grandson uh, uh, and and Stradivari and Guarneri families and Ruggeri families all come out of that major uh, tree branch there. And they all did basically what they were told to do, probably starting at the age of 12 or something like it, maybe being musical also. The Guarneri family uh, married into a very musical family in Cremona. Uh, Monteverdi came from Cremona, so it was a, you know, music was an important thing. If if uh, if an Italian is hanging it in a bell tower, that makes a great story. Uh, some people some people play to- rock and roll to them at incredible volumes too, just to shake them up. They say, I, I personally think that that's a lot of hooey. I think the player plays in an instrument, but also learns to play the instrument, and and that more often is what playing in is. Uh, they, we have people come in and play for, oh, it's already opening up. And I'm thinking, you are very clever and you have just learned some of the secrets of what that violin is as opposed to your violin. 
uh, where to put the bow on the string, where where to get that juicy sound. You know, it's it's for every instrument, it's different. So that's what we run into a lot. And it would be we probably should just say yes. It's all true. That's right. It's all true. Let's keep we are mystical. Alive. That's right. Yes, and we go with a golden hammer yeah. in the forest and knock on all the trees. Yeah, to yeah we could. <laughs> you know. We could come up with a lot. <laughs> I think we could come up with a lot. I I think what and we, we have do dragons blood in. Our, and that's right. That's right. We use we do use some dragons blood in there. No, we don't. So. But that was a product. Dragon's blood is a product that you can buy. It's a it's a it's a, it's color, a dye it's a from color. the from from uh, India, China. But uh, yeah, I I just think that it's not as magical as all that. It's just so much fun to do, and it's it's such a nice thing to do something repeatedly over and over again. I mean, you, if you've made a, some violins. There's you're going to just keep making violins in that same manner. That's I think that's we, we try to look. There's enough surviving of the of what the dead Italians did. I think that 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 give us an inclination that we're doing it pretty much how they did it, uh, and that's what's fun. That's that's where we get to be geeks. You know, we're not geeks with with numbers or computers. We're geeks with wood and, and yeah. But but something too that that people sometimes think oh that Stradivari didn't he know what he was doing? If we really look to a, a, a violin in the condition that Strad had it and played or, or finished it in the baroque the, in the in baroque, baroque setup setup with strings that weren't refined with a different tailpiece with a different um, bridge with a different length of fingerboard you know all of those heavier neck you know nailed in the head if you know anything about acoustics or how a sample size or something or a tailpiece can influence a sound it there's so many variables he never heard his instruments as they are sounding today because even the bow was different. And if you know how much a bow can influence the sound of an instrument, there was no way that he could anticipate the concert halls that his instruments are playing in today. He never would have have known that sound. No. There wasn't even a size. Most, most instruments were played in a very intimate setting. And people would have, and they were considered already noisy instruments, you know. So they were, no, the English didn't like them. Yeah. So, so right there, um, what we attribute sometimes in regards to sound to Stradivari isn't there. There's been so much work on. It has changed so much, yeah. and and the changes we do today too on them, you know, the demands that are put on instruments. Sometimes it's hard on them. Mm. Yeah, modern bar, modern modern neck, modern fingerboard, uh, modern strings, modern. Uh, there's there's so many there's so many things that a new um, that an inst- that a Stradivari instrument today has that it, like Segrin says that that they didn't have at the time. They couldn't anticipate and, it. Either. And if if a Stradivari is worth five million dollars, it had better sound good. And if it doesn't. 
it's going to go back and get worked on until it does to somebody so that they can afford it. And whereas not every violin gets that amount of attention. Um, so, so those great old instruments are sounding good because some gr great people along the way have either kept them nice or respected them but, and, but it have worked on them also to get them to sound good. Yeah. There was also recently an exper uh, experience we had with Matt Hamowitz coming here to play. And, and we went to his concert and it was uh, his a cello, a cello is Baroque set up and he was playing with a pianist with uh, Beethoven sonatas uh, accompanied by a piano of the period of 1830, 1840. Beethoven's time. Yeah. What a difference yeah, was that nice. was. What a balance between the instrument, the 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 cello and the piano. The the piano wasn't drowning out mm. the cello. Yeah. The string now, instrument. Yeah, now it the was, piano plays it against us. It was yeah. a harmony in, in strengths. And so Whereas so often you hear a concert, you know, one of those huge Steinways, you know, with a lid up and a string quartet next to them. And what you hear is piano. Even when they close the lid, you know, it's still powerful. They weren't, they weren't made as companions as they have been played today, you know. So, so right there, um, our ideas of what an instrument should sound has changed too, hmm. quite quite a lot over over time. but we also understand the covetousness of old violins you know is uh, maybe they're not as magical as people would think uh, like Sigrun says sometimes a concert will be given and people will be told they're listening to a strad and then at the end of the concert it's announced that no they were playing on a new instrument and and everybody it's it's amazing what you hear of oh I knew it or I suspected something. Most people don't have a clue. If they're told they're listening to a Strad, it is absolutely magical. But I, I understand that. I like old stuff. I like. I. We, I think both of us really revere somebody doing something a long time ago that we get to have, and uh, um, and I think I think it's the same with players. Sometimes a lot of players, you know, old violins can be very fussy. New violins less so. You know. Um, there's there's less problems with them. The gluing's not coming undone. The crack there's no cracks in them, and 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 so they're not having to fight weather and etc. With their and instruments, some instruments yeah. are true prima donnas. Yeah, there are. You could like in a in L.A. when the Santa Ana wind was blowing, we knew exactly that Peter Ryder would be coming in with his cello because it would be buzzing. You know. And there was so much worm yeah. and everything else in it. So, and some of them are so sensitive to moisture changes, yeah. too. You know that they need uh, constantly something they choke up, or you know, or, oh, this instrument doesn't like moist weather, or this doesn't like dry. You know, so, so yeah, even even there, they're prima donnas. Mm. You know, and you have to. It's it's quite a challenge. You know, so. So you have to deal with these finicky old instruments. Uh, what about customers, finicky customers? A friend of mine owns a violin shop, and uh, he says he has to deal with these eccentric people. Sometimes they're difficult. 
And uh, he once said that he thought maybe he should have gone to school to become a psychologist. Uh, he would have made a lot more money. That's true. It was an early major of mine, there was, too. <laughs> there was an incident with a rock player in Los Angeles. And this man came at Vice House. The first oh, time is... I met him, he looked literally like Einstein. And he had studied in Germany in the 30s. And he spoke impeccable German with a very young voice. And he came in to have a Baroque bridge cut for his Steiner instrument. And Hans kind of said, okay, and said, Sigon, you, you cut his bridge. And I cut a bridge at the time for $100 a shot. But I cut it out of a blank. It wasn't something pre-cut. And to his exact specifications. And I turn it in. I try to please that man so much because I thought he had a real, he spoke a very fluent German with me and I figured, okay, he's not cuckoo, you know. So he would come back after a week and this in, this bridge I cut for him was just a fragment. It was a lace of a of a bridge. Just gnawed. It looked like somebody had been gnawing on it. And we could not understand. And I cleaned his instrument, and I, and I had to. Don't go too deep anyway. into that. So, so it was, <laughs> it was really interesting, and I cut another one and another one, and then Weishar decided, no, we can't waste our time on that. So when Joe and I quit Weishar's, um we had a layover time, staying in LA, and we had to in something. So I said, well, I, I cut bridges all the time. I can't cut, contact him. So he would come to our workshop and our eyes were opened uh, because he was so in his world. He probably had OCD. Just yeah. to... It was sad. He was yeah. a really renowned person in his field yeah. at the time, but he was fixated with the sound and the bridge. He moved the bridge constantly. So he would sit there with the instrument on his lap, holding it with his mouth, and have a little rat tail file and file on the bridge to make the holes bigger. And now I understood why yeah. the instrument was yeah. as it was yeah. and the bridge as yeah. it was. Then he would put it under his chin, play a chord, and said, ah, that's it. Yeah. And then it clicked in his head again, and he was back to filing. Yeah. And I was nothing but a therapist for yeah. him. Well, we called his wife and asked if this was all right, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Because we, And she thanked us. We were the only people that ever called her about it. If we would not do it, that would be good. And we stopped doing it. It was actually a we sound kind of a sad, say, sad thing. But what it was, it was we were just therapy for him mm. at that time. But, but, but mostly, but mostly... The customers that we've gotten that have our instruments yeah. are not like that. They, no. they they buy them because they've fallen in love with them. And the only thing we can do is to keep them in love with them by keeping them sounding good. And, you know, you know, if somebody comes in wanting a repair and they start complaining about the last guy that had it and what they did bad and then the guy before that had ruined it even more... That's, you know, that's, to me, that's a, all my bells go off of can we get this person out and in their car as friendly as possible 
and make sure we're waving goodbye as they leave because we don't want to be that next person. We do not want to be that next person. So mostly, I think, we have a, a very few, actually, of, of that sort that Segrin just described. You know, yeah. the, most people are, are sincere musicians. They don't necessarily blame the instrument of their having a bad day. Some people do, but most people are just professionals. Or just They just want to play music. Um, I think that's... Yeah, and 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 uh, and some professional. I must say, you know, in history, they they are so big that sometimes they don't recognize that they're also just because they are so good doesn't mean that they. Um, how can I say it nicely? Um, Tear up a violin. Yes. <laughs> Use it we've seen, very hard. We've some, we've seen some. They're more important than the violin. Yeah, and because even though know, this is the he's the eighth or ninth or tenth generation that's played it. Yeah. Uh, or fifteenth, for that matter. And we've seen a few things like that where a violin's, uh, like Segrin says, you don't you know you 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 don't want to see a you don't mind seeing a little scar on something. But a big scar on somebody's face is really hard to see. And some people put the equivalent of that big scar on a face just by abuse. On yeah. A, yeah. yeah, on the violin. Yeah. On a violin, yeah. on, on a nice old yeah. violin to boot. Yeah. You know? Although Paganini famously played his, you know, he was oh. Jimi Hendrix. Paganini was Jimi Hendrix of 1830, 40, 50, and... And he got this Del Jesu and he made his living on it and it was a famous instrument and it got put away as soon as he was finished using it. He gave it to the city of Genoa. It got put away. Uh, what is it? Uh, road hard and put away wet. And he tore it up. But it was Paganini tearing it up just and, like Jimi Hendrix tore up his, his strap. Time, and we love it. <laughs> and for the longest time, for that reason, instruments had, it, when people faked instrument made a really big dark center yeah. and around the bridges because there was so much rosin buildup yeah. that made it kind yeah. of dark and there fiddlers that. still do that they like that they like that big white thing of powder on the face of their instrument because it looks like they've been playing eventually that white turns to black it oxidizes it becomes one, one with, with the it, varnish yeah it and melts it doesn't into come it. off yeah. and it's yeah, it's a, it's like okay, but you could wipe it off. But I think again, it depends on what they're playing. If they're playing a strad and doing that, then oh, then I, I yeah. at a certain point in time, you don't want that kind of wear to happen. Although we love it on our new instruments, uh, if we've antiqued an instrument and somebody plays it really hard for ten years and and rides it hard and puts it away wet, it looks great when it comes in. They're saying, oh no, it's horrible, and we're thinking. No, it looks real. <laughs> so that makes us happy. And and then I say, hey, it's your tool. It's, yeah, it's yours. I'm still alive. If you would do the same thing to an old yep. instrument, I would kill you. Yeah. You know? I have to confiscate that. Yeah. yeah. But but here, I'm still alive. I still can repair it and do some something. It's a new instrument. It's your tool. If I would have to uh, pussyfoot around my knives, you know, uh, working with them... Uh, I wouldn't get any work done, you know, but maybe that's not a good, a good, uh, bad uh, comparison. But still, it's a tool for a musician. It should be a tool. And that's why a modern instrument, I would say, go and play it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. 
talk now, if you will, about uh, the prices of these old violins, uh, because now you have investors, not musicians, buying them. It's good for us, because a Strat is a million, two million, five million, sixteen million. Um, uh, ours are less. And musicians musicians can afford them. Yeah. Yeah. And and if we can give them uh, something they can play and and make the music with and are comfortable, obviously, and double blind um, uh, 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 trials, you know, sound trials, instruments of modern makers have really stood out. We have stood out quite big Hmm. before old ones. So I'm thinking, obviously, if in double blind tests, you know, we can give you a tool that you can work with. Yeah, great. Here's another, for instance, that we were Sigrun and I and a and a good a studio musician in Los Angeles, Steve Ardotti, who's a cellist down there, and um, we were all at the Picasso exhibit in in San Francisco of all of these Picassos. And it was right around the time that the Lady Blunt famous violin was going to be sold for for uh, earthquake relief in Japan. Uh, this was uh, the Lady Blunt Stradivari, and uh, famous because of its really good condition. And so we we all stopped, and there at at this Picasso exhibit, there was a there was a piece called Le Violon, the violin which was yeah, two or three boards nailed together, glued together, some red paint. And this was, this, I was scraps. Right yeah, yeah. There. We, I could make, I could make a Picasso in just moments, uh, and 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 so here was this Lady Blunt Stradivari, the epitome of violin making in in its condition and the time of when it was made, and the maker was the best thing that could possibly be of the violin. And our friend Steve said, the Lady Blunt is is going to be sold for eight million dollars. I wonder what this would sell for. And and here it is. This Picasso is going to be worth more, just as this couple of scraps that Picasso threw together, kind of mocking the violin in a sense. It's going to be twice what a violin is worth. So, so you get an idea of prices at that regard of what's worth what. You know, how much is a baseball card worth? It's it's cardboard. It's it's destroying yeah. itself as we talk. Why is that worth something? I think violins have done the same thing. There are there are people that get together and buy violins, but it's been again, it's been better for us that that uh, people can afford us and they can't afford those those things. I found that most things in a violin making shop have a story. In the case of Joe and Segrin, even the chairs we used for the interview had a tale to tell. These chairs came from a quartet called the Angeles Quartet. And they were recording all Haydn quartets uh, close by in a church in Tiburon for the Haydn Society. And they got a Grammy for the recordings. And so they needed chairs that wouldn't squeak while they were at this church, you know, to sit on. And and, uh, and they did this over five or six years. They, yes. their, their mission was to play uh, the piece two or three times before they recorded it. So they would... That give would be concerts. a mission. They would give concerts, and then they would come and record it. And so we record for a week, yeah. you know, two days, one day off, and then two days. And so these these were the chairs that yeah. one when of the, the players... When the recording was finished, 
they said, well, can you keep these chairs for us? And we just store them. And and we said, well, sure. And so we kind of kept them for a while. And then they came back and we said, well, what are you going to do with these chairs? And they said, they don't know. And they were all here and we had the chairs signed. That By then they had won their Grammy. <laughs> and we had them sign these chairs. So these are our Grammy Grammy winning chairs. <laughs> so they are these were actually on, in the recording. <laughs> and they were perfectly quiet. And they were exactly. <laughs> perfectly quiet. Actually, our kids and us were one time we took our children there to experience what a recording is. And we sat in the pews very quietly like church mice and and uh, just heard them work and had the team very famous team, Mark. Um, yeah, recording team. Yeah, it was, yeah a, it was, it was a really famous recording team, just a, a two out there. And it was amazing. What an experience. Were they playing instruments you had made or worked on? Uh, Steve was playing our cello, yeah. I think. Uh, and then... And also the Gibbettini. Yeah, the the and the... Um, the other violins were more or less famous violins. There was uh, yeah. Kathy Lansky's uh, uh, J.B. Guadagnini, and uh, um, yeah, they had a they had a couple of different second violinists. Um, so they so not only did the instruments change, the violinists changed sometimes during that during that recording. Uh, but there was three principal players there, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they were playing on what they were comfortable with too. And sometimes old instruments very comfortable they are just you know a, 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 again that's back to that why does a player want an old instrument that there is a comfort and there is an immediacy to the sound when you're playing it that that a new violin has to develop you know it's oh, not so much I this was a fast speakers ours are a five million dollar instrument does sound better just does sorry double blind <laughs> to the player, to the player, to their psychology, we're going to call it. Here's a brief interlude of music performed by cellist Mark Summer. He's playing a cello that was made by Joe and Segrin, which he named Daphne. The solo piece is titled Pattern Language and is from the Turtle Island Quartet music CD, Confetti Man. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater with additional help from our daughter, Emily McHugh. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information about this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Our journey through the world of the violin family has enriched our understanding of these instruments in so many ways. I hope it has done the same for you, and that you will listen to future podcasts and will tell your friends. Thank you.